so Sean Bill, uh, give you a quick synopsis, uh, started in 1994 at the Chicago Board of Trade and Commodity Pits when it was open outcry. Um, moved over to the big state level in 1998, did that for through 2011. Uh, then became you know, a CIO, like, uh, did that for 10 years, which was named the CIO, the CIO Magazine. Then uh, switched back over to the hedge fund uh, about a year and a half ago, and then focused on private credit. And I've uh, been an active angel investor, uh, I'd say about 2014. <laughs> Excuse me, Stephen Burke. I'm at Harris Investment Partners uh, out of New York. We're a billion, three billion, four, depending on the day. That's the manager, uh, mainly in the public markets. And I did partner with 361 in uh, the Tuesday uh, uh, Venture Fund. Um, I started in the business in 81. Uh, interest rates were 20% back then. I tried to get a job in commercial real estate, so shows how much I know about the world. Uh, but I'm looking forward to our discussion today. Michael Spade, uh, <laughs> as you heard, uh, I'm from Germany. Uh, met him 25 years ago. I was from a past investment banker, uh, started from my career in private equity, and uh, learned a little bit uh, not to do this with a bank. So, to become a private equity company, I was a bank owned private equity company, which is very strictly to do something uh, with a company. And uh, I did not sell it before uh, to be that was for myself with grants. That's not the first thing about you. And have done uh, six times uh, transaction income from good to better. Uh, I'm running it as a small private equity boutique at my own family office in Germany, uh, investing in uh, a couple of uh, European transactions. Uh, uh, and uh, building now the 361 that we're in worldwide. I have a PhD in marketing and finance, uh, and uh, being a father of two girls, I was interested in doing some of stuff that I knew, so my own daughter has gone to Strategic Model, she liked that. And uh, she liked to run the next gen tunnel and she was ready with her um, last week in the summertime and uh, that she will join us. And uh, hopefully she uh, can uh, a little, little bit out of uh, the map gens which are also with us here. <clears throat> Thanks. Uh, I'm Safar Rashti. I run an early stage venture firm in Silicon Valley called Think Plus. Uh, we invest in senior series A in companies across a number of industries that we have identified each year as the markets that we think would be growing in the next five to years. I'm acting in this space. Uh, before that, I was an angel investor. Before that, I worked on Wall Street as an analyst for about 10 years. It was the first analyst to look at the search market and Google was just becoming a larger company well before, of course, there were problems and Google before the industry called the Google Search Industry. And there I was the first analyst to look at China's digital market in 2003. There was, you know, already almost the series. So those things made me a lot of connections and uh, I was able to make so Wall Street in 2007, I decided to take the connections and decide that we got a principal investor and I started making my investments, and early investments in the early stage companies, seven exits of the public companies, and I started taking my seat as I said. So once I said, 
Me, I, I try to look at the very top level picture of at least 30,000, 6,000 years. And because I think it kind of permits from that level down, everything would be new, whether for investors or shopkeepers or whatever. And as I look at uh, the past, I would say 20 years, the trend that I see that is worrying is uh, geopolitics and how the countries are moving to different towns. It was a period when we thought capitalism and liberalism had won, and that was the direction that the world is going to take. We were encouraging science and that. But what we have seen in the past 10 years, especially about two or three years, is that that is not necessarily the case. And I worry about the impact of that. Our growth to happen to both the largest countries in the world, like China and India, as well as the emerging countries in Africa and elsewhere. Uh, I think that protectionism and populism and those are the biggest threats that we are facing today for growth of capitalism and growth of liberalism. We needed two groups where they can't really have a functioning growth oriented economic model without liberalism. So let me stop there and just see so it's absolutely exciting. Uh, it's not just uh, about scarcity uh, that we have. Uh, this is also a on that uh, Living in Europe, where we have more, much more closer to us uh, than others, uh, so uh, we have uh, refugees uh, along the route uh, to Germany, so we have to integrate to the Ukrainian people. Sleep is uh, day by day. I'm also from Syria, and uh, all, 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 all these uh, crisis regions. Uh, to integrate them, it's, it's a huge and uh, very hard uh, kind of work we have to do. And what scares me is uh, that our political situation is not that it's getting a little bit more to getting a more set up. Uh, it's not uh, that we have this um, concepts oriented uh, type of politics, which again, we are getting more uh, to the, the back or to the right side. Yes, it's a, it's a good uh, example that we have the same kinds also in Europe. Just to, um, Germany was a, every time described as one of the countries where we now consensus oriented to have of uh, politics that this will change. Yes, it will not be ever this over the next five years. Uh, so we are then going in a different way. And, uh, this will cause also some instabilities to me uh, in uh, the way how we uh, manage the law. On the other side, we are in a in the century where uh, a lot of people are happening and where uh, we see that um, new kind of business has it will be created. Yeah, so in, the, in Europe, it's all dominant. Uh, we are lack of talents. We have not uh, so many people who can do that much. But other regions um, uh, like Africa and the Middle East, they're doing. And I see uh, there's a lot of opportunities we can uh, um, uh, use to collaborate and also uh, do uh, this for the beneficial of the Holocaust. And so you can uh, learn to collaborate with them, to use their talents and bring uh, technology and everything over. This is a huge and uh, beneficial way. Uh, to grow the worldwide economy and uh, also the parts of the development. I agree with them on the global fragmentation. It's one of the three big uh, issues that's a negative. Um, 
if you did a Venn diagram of uh, the U.S. and China where we overlap, there would be only white space. Uh, <laughs> we have no, no overlap there. If you did it on Democrats and Republicans sharing ideas, particularly with the forest, uh, you get no, no overlap there either. And that's tough to move forward when we have big problems that need solving. So I think you have the global fragmentation is one issue. Um, I think you have a reset of the cost of living that we're going to be adjusting to that happened very quickly with a 5% increase last year. And then you have uh, another destabilizing factor, fact, which is the reindustrialization of the global economy due to the issues that software was raising. I think that those are all negatives and positives. It's just as where you're going to play in that to get the investment opportunities. But I think it's one of those situations where the change is going to be so great um, that you have to actually be ahead of the curve and looking at where things are going and being really thoughtful about where you can and cannot invest. And the governments are telling you where you can invest now in a different way than they have in the past. China is using that. You're seeing that in the U.S. with the Chips Act and other acts. So where we spend our money is going to be in a different place, I think, as investors. And it's been in the past, um, so I would agree with all the geopolitical comments there. I do think the divisions are uh, challenging. Um, from an investment standpoint, I don't know if you have that chart um, that has um, kind of the 2022 summary, which I, I think is very, very um, challenging. It's going to be um, uh, the concern is really kind of how central banks are going different directions in the world, right? So you have the US. Uh, has raised interest rates um, at the most aggressive rate that we have seen in, in history, really. Um, you have a massive shift up in the entire yield curve, across the entire yield curve, which we saw that did to some of the banks uh, recently here. And um, that, um, yeah, so that, that, that picture right there, that far right side on the left chart, really just, you know, uh, really haven't seen anything like that. So since 2000. Eight two thousand nine, and in a zero interest rate or a certain environment uh, with quantitative easing, and uh, you know to have such a quick and sudden shift, uh, I think it is challenging, and that's where the Fed got behind on the on the inflation outlook. Um, if you go to the next chart, you kind of see the results on this. Um, so you know the chart on the left um, is a chart that is a scatter plot that shows. The frequency which both stocks and bond indexes have been lower at the same time uh, in history, and there's about five times that that's happened, is very unusual. Uh, typically, your, your bond portfolio would be a balanced to your equity or other growth-oriented risk that you're taking in the portfolio. And we see this year where that failed. And um, if you look on the right chart, it shows you that basically a traditional 60-40 uh, plan, which is a, a good chunk of institutional assets. In fact, I would say it's probably more conservative than most uh, institutional asset portfolios. Most portfolios, you think about an endowment like Yale, may have only 5% fixed income or 6% fixed income. Uh, many pensions don't have more than 14 or 15% in fixed income. So they're more heavily slanted at the growth. So this is your, probably your better case scenario, really. Um, you know, this is the worst performance uh, for pension funds and, uh, since 1937. So if you think about the, and, and Stephen spoke about this over the last few days, of the unfunded liabilities of pensions, uh, you know, you as taxpayers are all on the hook for that. Uh, those are uh, uh, in-state constitutions, most constitutions that they are uh, contracts that cannot be renegotiated. 
so I think we'll see, you know, a significant increase in the tax burden uh, for the folks in these uh, states like California, Illinois, and others. Um, and so I think that's that's the big one. Um, and I think when you look at central banks, the U.S. is leading the way. Uh, you know, you really can't compare it to Europe or the BOJ, which would be the two majors. Uh, in terms of the rate increases, and that's going to create a lot of turbulence and side effects in the markets. All right, you, said, you basically said we're scared. Okay, I'm excited. All right, well, that sounds much fun about, you know, maybe you want to go micro too. What are you excited about? So, like, you know, it's a short and long. Yeah, so Paris Bueller, the day off, right? The license plate says nervous, you know, on the car. And that's how I generally feel about the investment markets. Where where I would be excited, I do think that, you know, innovation and productivity. Uh, I'm probably going to have another leg out here that we, you know, we just heard from the folks that use with AI. Um, you know, I think that's a big, big, uh, big advance. Uh, so I, I do think that that's probably one of the most positive areas. I do think that you know, there's a once you get past the transition of the initial shocks to the portfolios, uh, having higher interest rates is very strong positive. And we're actually being paid, uh, you know, for being savers again, which you know, when financial repression. That was not happening. So I think that's where you'll see uh, pretty significant flow into traditional fixed income and alternative and private credit. And I think those are probably the most exciting areas. I'd say that it's kind of a far bell. You know, the, the far left, uh, you know, growth oriented through venture capital, and the far right, probably private credit. For us, the NARS are in the public markets, so the uh, opportunities created by the venture community um, are creating opportunities for us uh, that we enjoy. So uh, we're very heavily invested in a lot of the chip companies and a lot of the uh, arms merchants into uh, what's going on with the Chips Act. So really what excites us about the investment portfolio from a macro micro perspective is uh, the Chips and Science Act, uh, the National Defense Authorization Act give you a clear 10-year uh, path how the government's going to be spending money. And you saw that, you, know, you saw the FT article the other day, yesterday that we've already added another $200 billion to spend uh, on manufacturing in the U.S. You think that's a, a really um, exciting area and uh, the Midwest is going to be a big beneficiary of that. Unfortunately, that transition from China back to the U.S. is going to be inflationary. So you have to think about how you play your portfolio for a, bit of a higher inflationary environment. Um, but like those areas, chips, defense, uh, the healthcare are among the, the top areas we're looking at. Um, and then obviously the tech uh, and the cloud uh, set up, it all plays into what we're doing. So keep doing the venture stuff so we can keep benefiting the both markets. So what's exciting is, um, is that we in Europe, uh, I'm taking the European perspective too, to get a little bit more local, uh, that Europe started uh, to be able to use in uh, climate tech and all of them have impact investments. Uh, we have a lot of things uh, introduced uh, on the IT stuff. So uh, companies like Nokia and Ericsson Pascal, uh, everything has been shipped to the US. Uh, and now in Europe, it's realized that uh, venture is also important. And uh, investing heavily in uh, a couple of uh, further technologies. Uh, I include also Israel, because for Israel, it's a, it's a hub for Europe to develop uh, further sales. And, uh, and maybe you know uh, or not, uh, Israel is reducing at the moment uh, roughly 50% of all the nations worldwide. 
And this was uh, in the last three years, uh, statistic, and uh, they are not able to um, bring this in the market. So, so they do this through a certain point, and uh, they need something. And uh, here is definitely uh, the main point to do that. Uh, it's also the last from the European politics that uh, biotechnology is becoming an important factor. And we do shuffle uh, later this year uh, to what they do. Uh, in the UK, uh, we have. Uh, the biotech uh, topic in, in uh, Germany, which is helping us to do that, and uh, this excites us uh, that the reality that we can do something in these areas is great. Uh, so, um, as uh, 361, we're supporting with a couple of uh, impact investments. Uh, we have uh, hydrogen uh, investments, we have uh, now green energy investments. Which are not so popular here in the US, as uh, the US is much more behind that one. Wind energy, uh, uh, solar energy, very species besides that one, and distribution of that. This is uh, something where we also need AI stuff or something, but this is still to run the process. The business model for itself is a different one where we use this type of technologies and develop these types of business models. And this is important. From a government perspective, and we see there is an opportunity in the that. So, when I said that uh, the crisis or the, what you said always us is the same, uh, I didn't mean it as a joke. I really mean it because every crisis is an opportunity. So, if you look at, if you look at uh, what you outlined as the um, problems the world is facing, and you bring it down to what areas can be addressed to solve that. To me, it comes down to three areas. Uh, transportation, if it's still a problem, it's solved. Energy, out there. Now, food actually, I don't think is a problem. The problem is the logistics. So the last one we get, what categories would be logistics. So building these areas in a significant way would help the growth of not just U.S., but the world as well, as well as helping us countries that are underdeveloped to develop in a way that they can then adopt more of the working policy model. Because we've been losing that battle with China something that China has shown that well you don't have to be have to be the policy to grow and you can actually give you money now and uh, have people all right. So we have to reverse that. That's an opportunity for us uh, for the best and the US in particular in the next I would say 30 to 50 years. So if you want to come down further from that um, and to the micro levels, certainly technology is going to continue to be, the, to me, almost a linchpin of all of this uh, uh, transformation to a more stable world. And in particular, in helping finally to have productivity go up by expanding the use of technology, both among demographics and among other industries. I think one reason that we haven't had any productivity increase despite the adoption of technology, some game-changing technologies over the past 40 years, is because it's been applied to a few industries only. And this has been a big enigma for the economists. Why hasn't productivity gone up uh, even with the PC or with the mobile or internet or cloud revolution? And some people think it would be finally true with the uh, with the large language models in ChatGPT, I don't think it will happen necessarily unless the expanding use of technology to all the limits. In fact, remember yesterday I made a comment that technology has never really took a job. And that's the reason productivity has not gone up. Because productivity is basically the total output divided by how many, uh, how many hours you have worked. 
if we had the or even working, but it would be hard. It really hasn't gone up. So not only we have to invest technologies that are uh, changing the, the, the way that we do things, we have to make sure that we expand it to all the industries. And that's what we look at. One other area that um, I think is really interesting in, uh, in the public markets, people, the public markets have reset. We've had a couple of resets over the last couple of years, but there's significant opportunities to buy single digit stocks that are um, single digit multiple stocks in areas that are absolutely essential for what's going on. I'll give you three industries the steel industry. Is if you take the top five companies, their combined market cap is less than $70 billion. And think of all the infrastructure bill that's going to go on with the, uh, uh, the Infrastructure Act and the, the uh, Chips and Science Act. Um, it's going to be massive. And you could buy the top five companies with less than $70 billion right now. You can buy the top five EMP companies who banks have stopped lending to and are really moved into a, a profitability mode instead of a growth mode for single-digit multiples. And you can buy uh, some of the tech companies at very reasonable multiples now, again, where you haven't had that opportunity. So I think there are a number of, of really good opportunities throughout the capital structure that you can take advantage of. People are, um, I think, ignoring or too slow to, to see the opportunities that are right there in front. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think like the oil and energy space is definitely locked out from the capital markets. Uh, it's been pretty interesting. And we were looking at some bank lines credits for our funds. Uh, one of the first questions we got from the banks was, do you have any loans outstanding to oil and gas? I'm like, wow, this is uh, it's definitely interesting. Um, and, you know, we're seeing it also, um, you know, I, I'm also kind of a proponent. Uh, so, you know, I'll name it, you know, like First Republic, for example. Would not make a, 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 a um, would not enter into a loan agreement with us from leverage on the funds if we had any oil and gas exposure. And I don't know what, what the, the reason was for that, to be honest, but uh, they were very clear about it that we just having to be a disqualifier. Um, so, you know, it, it, I don't know, I imagine that comes top down. Um, right. But it can be move the areas that are going to get invested. Thank you. No, I wasn't doing it. Defer to Dave on that because he probably forgot more about it than I know about it. But, uh, yeah. Um, so I'm just curious, many of you can come in. So, we'll get an example of this. Um, we've seen this in, in the Middle East, but you've also seen this with oil and gas. Uh, I might actually be by action stuff that I didn't know about. I might talk about this later. But uh, there's a company called Carbon Engineering that's being backed by Occidental Petroleum, right? And, and they're doing carbon sequestration, right? And so, how many of these? Big oil and gas companies are actually going to pursue and be leaders in both dealing with the carbon impact, but also maybe even in, in new technologies like performance energy. And you know, is there opportunity uh, given their resources and their infrastructure, you know, for them to actually become leaders and as opposed to just being in a story? And I'm, I'm kind of curious if you have any thoughts on that. Michael, you might speak that's European. 
a better model. It seems it's not only European. Uh, we have uh, last time uh, we have been involved in like a guy called uh, Michael Billion, which is a Canadian company named Progress there, and they're doing the user exactly what you described, and they have these skills and uh, doing the. Uh, uh, working on uh, those things, uh, which can be developed on the organization and, uh, and uh, producing oil and gas. But in general, what we see is, um, and we have all the naturally lack. And when, uh, when we have the uh, September or October session, we know uh, there was an oil and gas that uh, was the most interesting discussion because he said, it's number 2015. Yeah. And he is right to say, hey, uh, we will have more oil and gas consumption in future time. But uh, the proportion of uh, alternative, in, uh, alternative uh, um, energies uh, will, will be increasing as well. Yeah, so in total, the oil and gas industry will become a really important to work on the right way to do this and use everything. It's also an important factor. The majority of everything it's uh, it's done uh, on technology from the technology side. It's uh, it will be done on uh, the real benefits. I mean, that what will happen is, and then we will see. Uh, let's take an example: Saudi Aramco. Yeah, they have earned last year 150 billion more than the year before, and this is a huge amount of money. Yeah, because uh, the old uh, pass uh, has dropped uh, dramatically up, and it's not uh, it's not the way that they are expecting to get to get out. That's it, and uh, this would give them a certain power to do some further investments uh, and to do something uh, what they can do with, with this small money. So if you have the resources in hand and can use them, this will also change something in the world. That's it. Um, we have not only that, but uh, we can do something of that. Germany on the on weekend we closed uh, all our three nuclear uh, energy power plants, so we are completely off of that. Uh, uh, I mean, open, Sweden as well. Yeah, so we we get a different way to do that. Uh, everybody blamed Germany in uh, September. Oh, you're losing uh, now your gas uh, resources from Russia. When we have moved to the storage, uh, we uh, the wind was not that strong as expected, but uh, we are still eighty six percent. So we have much more gas stored than ever just before, and we don't have we don't have on record. So uh, it could be uh, it could be also a possible way to do this with our own advantages. There's no one way to do this in this way or that way. We have to uh, get the right balance. Um, I would uh, never used to say that uh, nuclear power is uh, it should be off. Uh, this is a discussion in general, which has been which is 20 years old. When you ask people today, uh, who will say 60% agree that nuclear power is it's good and you have to invest in that. They say because it's a uh, long term uh, investment, and you can do that. But nevertheless, the consumption of stuff in the world will be increased and uh, all the gas. Price a big role, and what you described, and what is that which really we have to do that? This class, we are able to do that. Yeah, so, um, I don't know I mean, I think if you think about it, I don't think you're giving all this additional profit. What do you think could have happened if it came out of the Wouldn't they say, well, let's put 50 billion dollars up at this in the new area set for the I don't know too much about customers, but let me share with you what we saw, but. This is an industry that's changing, and they are not 
changing the designs. They would give you IDMs that would be left behind, like Microsoft and Google's, where we saw that what was coming, so we have to do that, or something, is coming, so it's not sufficient to have enterprise software. So here, I totally agree, we need new sources, but for a long time, we are going to use the uh, fossil-based energy, so we need to capture the carbon and be able to deal with it. There's no way that eating the electrified everything that we're using in the world that we can actually have clean energy because we need energy to produce those bad things at those costs. Uh, so I, I think they're behind, and that's actually an opportunity uh, for, for windows. I think there's, I think there are some, I think the energy companies have earned a bad name and in the last couple of years have worked to improve it. And I do think companies like PT, Chevron are leading a lot of these energy transitions. You know, they're not, um, they're not, they don't get any credit for it. They get blamed for everything. Um, they're, they get blamed for now being, trying to be profitable. That's what they're getting criticized for now instead of growing for growth thing, which was a terrible business uh, model that they had going. But if you look at their data and their science and their knowledge of uh, energy, that's so essential. We're going to throw that away, which is really what we're trying to do right now by alienating. So I think ideology and poor planning are the part playing for energy transition, not the oil companies. Um, it's not having a plan to get to the transition that you need. And we're forcing a transition we're not being ready and that we're not ready for. Um, we have a whole grid system that has to be completely revamped. Um, so you can create all the different sources of energy you want, but you can't get it where it needs to get to. What's the value? So I think the I think the fossil fuel companies do play an important role. Have to be brought into the into the discussion differently than being adversaries. It's like when we criticize the banks in a way where they deserved it, but look what happened this time. It actually helped save the system again. So we have to embrace corporations differently. We have to set them up with better better standards and better models and better regulations. But they get criticized for not pumping oil not pumping oil on demand. But it takes a while to get the oil fields ready to, to re ramp them up again. So they can't just do it when the Biden administration or the Trump administration wants to do. That to be, we have to have a plan for what we're doing. We don't have it. So that's going to be the problem. And our company in the, in the late 70s was uh, subcontractors to the Carter administration on the future finding needs energy costs to the US. And I think what came out of that plan was right on red at 55 miles an hour was our energy plan. We did nothing really. More than that. So that's what we're suffering from years of neglect of having a plan. I see. Just before we add to that, you know, like all the companies that are great, which is that they're great, I think the stock guys are doing a lot better than just the oil and gas company just pumping oil and gas. It was Total and Shell. They all are just like BP and Exxon. Mm -hmm. I don't really have a lot of detail being next to you there. You started to say three things, and energy was one of them. One of gas, and I sort of regretted gri gri that question. So narrow down to uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm buying a little bit of time to be honest. I'm curious, like, if people, what their, what their thoughts are on digital assets and whether they've rolled uh, a portion of their portfolios in digital assets. Through all the craziness that's been happening in the last year. Well, hands up, you're on Bitcoin. Okay, so one, two, two, three, five. 
Okay. But by the way, it's not a big camp. So I do have a little bit on it. It's um, okay. It is so um, the pension fund that I used to run, we were the first US pension fund to buy Bitcoin. We put the proposal in in 2019, and it was at $9,000 a, a turn. Uh, it got done uh, finally in 2021 at uh, $18,000. Um, uh, I think that you know it's actually with everything going on with central banks and what's happening with the inflation and the devaluing of the dollars and the printing and the quantity of using, et cetera, which you can find in the European central banks. And JP, you know, of course, Japan really kicked it all off uh, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. Uh, I do think that that is a, a core position of like a 1% to 3% is a safety valve that people should consider. Um, so, and we did, we did uh, push that in the pension world. And uh, it is interesting that a lot of pensions are looking at this. They don't talk about it uh, publicly, but uh, I can tell you CalSTRS, uh, you know, some of the other folks are in chat, private chat groups and doing their research, doing their homework and trying to figure it out. And this, this area is so out of favor right now that uh, we just did a uh, $5 million loan to a data center that is um, with the Exxon Mobil folks, uh, the Raymond family out in Dallas. And uh, we were able to get mid-teens on the interest rates on that. They put up 40 million uh, at equity. We put up five with an option for another five. And uh, we've got probably 3X coverage on the electrical assets in terms of the transformers and the voltage, et cetera. Banks don't want to touch it. Like they will not go near it. You know, so you can get warrants on the equity it's a really interesting play and uh you know a small portion of portfolio i think makes sense well i think it's the same thing with oil and gas you know it's got it's at least top down in washington and you think what you're seeing with cancer was widely thought of as a component in the mit index classes on this and i think people have been really surprised at uh kind of the way the sec has approached this stuff um, so I think it's top down in Washington. I think there's a lot of thing, a lot of conversation about Operation Choke Point Two, uh, two point zero, trying to choke this out. Because if you lose uh, the dollar, as you know, it loses its reserve currency status. I don't think happens in the next ten years, fifteen, twenty years. Um, but if you did, that's a really big problem. Just go with it. Just dollar. I think it's going to be the reserve currency for the next ten years. Probably even longer. Uh, I do think the uh, alliances that are being created around the geopolitical fragmentation will weaken the, the dollar's strength, but it knock it out. Um, autocratic governments can't be a reserve currency. Um, Japan, right now, is probably not in a good position because a reserve currency goes the euro. <clears throat> so I think the, you'll see more <clears throat> excuse me, alignments like. Um, uh, Brazil, Lou was talking about with Brazil and China. Uh, you'll do more uh, agreements to trade commodities in their own currencies, but it still comes back to the dollar eventually. So I'm not sure it's going to be as fast as everyone thinks. And I don't think inflation is going to be running away like it did in the past. I think we're getting close to the peak. will take some of the luster off of the move away from the dollar. So if the U.S. stops raising rates, so Europe's going to continue. Um, I think the dollar will be fine because of that. But I, I don't see a, a replacement yet. And I don't think you want to go into a basket of currencies where you can't trust half the people in currencies. I think, I think there's a really interesting 
marriage that's going to happen over the next five years between central banks and the, the rest of the world and how digital plays a role in the digital central bank coins, which will allow money to flow more easily. The BIS did an interesting report on this. And they have the central banks at the bottom, but there's different ways you can go on a wholesale or retail basis for uh, crypto and currencies combined. And I think you'll see that there are areas, obviously, in, in Africa and other areas, it makes all the sense in the world. In other countries, it makes less sense. So I think you have to look at them on a, on a basis. basis. Like, the I give you an example where I believe you're completely wrong. I think the thing ever seen twice in the game is true or not. Uh, when I was uh, starting my first year, I was in uh, the beginning of the month. So, uh, yeah. uh, but, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was in Palaja and visited uh, uh, the Apple Research Center. And uh, there was a guy that uh, I've done uh, my first teaching study on telecoms and, uh, uh, and how the telecoms will develop. And I said, if you will ask people on that, you know, I said, uh, they will tell you everything. Saying telecom, it's uh, telecommunication by federal, you know, the fire, and everything. So at that time, uh, the question was, can we fill the T3 pipe just with data? T3 pipe is 34 megabits. Yeah, so there's nothing from today yet. And uh, then we said, no, we can't do that. Yeah, so we, we, we're not uh, doing that. 30 years later, we know that we need uh, fiber objects and we have gigabytes. We have transported gigabytes. And the same uh, kind of reinvented with all scaffolds as industries. Yeah, so that was a good example. Uh, within a certain time of, uh, of, uh, uh, of years, the uh, industry has uh, changed dramatically, and we have brought in other industries, the internet was first that, and then uh, other industries have been followed. IT, everything is based on data communication, the same will happen also in banking system. I'm not a believer in uh, the old banking system with, um, with uh, the old side of money. So if you're talking about digital assets, this is exactly what we are doing. At the moment, we have a little bit of mistrust to blockchain because blockchain is every time represented by cryptocurrencies and cryptocurrencies uh, it's a uh, it's uh, for most of the people that they don't trust in that but if you don't trust and if you work on that digital assets uh, everything based on blockchain will become definitely an important factor for all of us and i believe in 30 years we'll never discuss any kind of currencies and here someone has possibly a very low impact right, on those ones. We will have a unique for it and uh, uh, digital base uh, kind of exchange of uh, things we do and not uh, having the same scenario we're talking about today. It's the same like right down to with them when we're talking about the April three pack just to say that we can. I mean, I, the only thing I would add is just uh, echo what was said about uh, central bank digital currencies. I'm not a believer in the current cryptocurrency models, so even blockchain, I think there are some uses for it, but I think it's the hype. On the other hand, I think it's inevitable that we would have central bank digital currencies. It makes a ton of sense. It is doable. It just has to be implemented slowly and gradually. And we would make the availability of uh, payment much wider among the population. What I'm actually excited is the next phase when there will be interoperability between different countries and different currencies once we have the which will be much more efficient to transfer money across borders than we have right now. So 
I think that's pretty good for the type of operation. Come join our 361 firm community of investors and thought leaders. We have a lot of events created by the community as we collaborate on investments and philanthropic interests. Join us.